It is my great joy to once again invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew as we immerse ourselves once again in the infallible record of divine revelation. Matthew chapter 22. And this morning we will look at verses 41 through 46. Before we look at the text, may I give you a few introductory thoughts. The 19th century hymn writer Charlotte Elliott wrote a hymn that is perhaps the foremost hymn of an invitation used in evangelistic services. You're all familiar with it. The chorus says, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. A beautiful verse, a beautiful description of gospel truth, for indeed, Jesus said that the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And the idea is that we can come to Christ regardless of the depths of our sin. However, I would submit to you that modern day evangelicalism has twisted this concept and put a damnable spin upon this marvelous truth. And the spin goes something like this. Come just as you are, but it's okay to stay that way after you come. That's the idea. No need for genuine heartfelt repentance. No need for self-denial. No need for taking up a cross. Just merely believe in Jesus. And of course, that means a thousand different things to a thousand different people. And as a result... Millions of people profess Jesus as Savior, but know nothing of him as Lord and Master. And to make matters worse, evangelicalism today tends to accept every profession of faith as genuine. But not all faith is redemptive. Not all faith is a saving faith. We read this all through the scripture. Much faith is spurious. It is false. James 2 speaks of faith without works, and that type of faith is what? It is dead, and it cannot save. You see, just merely a cognitive belief in Jesus, even as Savior, doesn't mean that you truly know Him and that you're truly born again. There must be verifying works, but many people come to Christ, at least they say they do, but they have the same old habits the same old life dominating sins, the same old attitudes, the same old vulgar jokes, the same old immorality, the same old selfishness, no mourning over sin, no hungering and thirsting for righteousness, no consuming passion to somehow please the master, but rather you just kind of come along and you fall into place with the Christian culture. You enjoy the churchianity of our day. It's kind of like a neat club to be in. A lot of nice people. In fact, if you're good at it, you can make a lot of money at it. So things like self-denial and holy living and Christ-like love and to have a secret devotion to God and His glory and all of those types of things are considered optional for many people. And I fear that our evangelical culture wants a Christian faith that will accommodate carnal Christians. And sadly, this is a sickening inclusivism 
one that is responsible for sowing countless tares among the wheat within the true church and therefore weakening the church with unbelievers who have no discernment, they have no power, they have no sacrificial love. And the reason for that is because they have no genuine saving faith. James Montgomery Boyce asked this question, and I quote, Why is today's church so weak? Why are we able to claim many conversions and enroll many church members but have less and less impact on our culture? Why are Christians indistinguishable from the world? Is it not that many are calling people Christians who are actually unregenerate? Is it not that many are settling for a form of godliness but denying its power? As Paul told us in 2 Timothy 3, 5. Dear friends, it is certainly my burden to see those of us at Calvary Bible Church truly know the living Savior and live in such a way that it is obvious to the world that it is obvious that Christ is a transforming God. But unfortunately, we see so many places, especially in our culture, in our evangelical culture, where there's this attitude that Christians need to somehow show the world how similar we are with them. But dear friends, I would submit to you again that It's not our similarity with the world that attracts people to Christ. Oh, you can attract people to a church by showing them that. And frankly, that's the heart of the seeker movement. But it's our difference from the world that draws people to Christ. So what is the source of such compromise? Many would say, well, don't don't people understand that that when you come to Christ, you need to obey him. I mean, that seems rather obvious. You're to obey him as our Lord. Well, unfortunately, many people call him Lord, but they do not know him as Lord. They do not serve him as Lord. They do not love him as Lord. Jesus mentioned this in Matthew seven twenty one. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father who is in heaven. That text goes on to say, as you will recall, that many people at the day of judgment will rehearse before God some astounding religious works that they did, but they will never enter the kingdom. The Lord says in Matthew 7, verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then Jesus said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Dear friends, this morning we are going to plunge into the depths of the identity of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Lord, the anointed one. We are going to immerse ourselves this morning in his glorious attributes and we're going to humble ourselves before his lordship, examining the profound and eternal implications of what it means to call Jesus, not just our savior, but our Lord, this morning we continue our fascinating verse by verse journey through the gospel of Matthew. And again, we observe once again, the amazing ministry of Jesus. Let me give you the context here before we read the text. It's the Passion Week. It's literally getting down to hours before the Lord will be betrayed. He has been preaching and teaching in the temple. He's run the money changers out. He is 
handily fought off the religious and political elite that have sought to humiliate him. He's in the temple court now. He has parried every blow of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. He's utterly defeated them, but they are not contrite. They are angry, they are furious, and they are humiliated. And after their failed attempts to trick Jesus with their own questions, Jesus now is going to ask one of his own. But he's not going to ask them this question to trick them. That is not his motivation. But rather as a loving act of faithful proclamation, a faithful preaching of the word, he is going to ask them a question here. Praying that they would repent and be saved. Having said that, let's look at the text here in verse 41 of Matthew 22. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. It is my most sincere desire to show you three things this morning. First of all, I want to remind you again of the true identity of Jesus Christ. And secondly, we want to revel in his glorious character and his attributes. And then thirdly, we want to rediscover the implications of what it means to call him Lord, the Lordship of Christ. Now, you've got to keep in mind, Jesus knows the wickedness that's going on in the hearts of the Pharisees. They've huddled together now over in the corners. They've been defeated and the multitudes are still all around and they're kind of licking their wounds, if you will. They've already plotted to kill Jesus. This is their intent because he's exposed their hypocrisy. He's challenged their authority. But he also knows that they refuse to acknowledge what they know to be true. And what they know to be true is that this Nazarene carpenter turned rabbi is, in fact, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of David, the son of God. And they cannot stand it. And my friends, this is the quintessential truth of all Christianity. The truth that separates Christianity from all other religions which are false. Namely, that Jesus was and he is and he forever will be God. You see, non-believers, atheists, agnostics, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, all of the cults, Hinduism, Buddhism, all of the isms, do not believe this. Therefore, all of those are false religions. They are doctrines of demons. By the way, this should not surprise us. You remember, John warned us in 1 John 4, beginning in verse 1. He said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, referring to demons. Demons, as you will recall, are the ones that 
propagate false doctrine. And many times they do this through false teachers. So he says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And now he's going to tell us how to do this. By this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist of which you have been of which you have heard that it is coming. And now it is already in the world. So, first of all. We look at the true identity of Jesus Christ. Jesus addresses this in verses 41 and 42. Pharisees gathered together. Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? He asked them, whose son is he? In other words, what is his genealogical record? He's speaking in the third person here. What is his ancestry? From what Jewish line has he descended? And they said to him, well, he's the son of David. Now, this is a bit humorous because Jesus knew that they knew the answer to that. But he also knew that they couldn't stand it. And here's why. You see, like all unbelievers, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, right? Romans one. You see, the Jews kept meticulous genealogical records in the temple. And of course, all of those records were destroyed in AD 70 when the Romans came in and obliterated all of the people in the temple. In fact, no one could hold any position of authority or any position of responsibility unless they could verify their genealogical background. In fact, the priests had to be descendants from Levi to serve. And you know that the temple authorities had already spent many hours poring over the genealogical records to check the veracity of Jesus's outlandish statement that somehow he was the son of David, the son of God. What a blasphemy. You say that you're a descendant of David. And therefore, you, you, you can somehow make your claim to be king, to be Messiah, to make it credible because of your record. Well, you know that they knew that they had already checked that. And if that wasn't true and they could prove that, they would have long since exposed Jesus as a fraud. Now, may I remind you of the Old Testament background that the Pharisees were trying desperately to distort and twist. And you know how it is. We can all do this. We hear some truth and it pricks our heart and we know that we need to deal with it. And it's like, oh, I don't like that. So I want to say, well, that's just your interpretation or I think it means this or. And here we go with all of the mental gymnastics. Well, the Old Testament background that they were trying to disregard and distort in order to justify their rejection is rather obvious. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me give you a few examples. You realize that the concept of the Messiah being the son of David comes from the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 12. Remember when Nathan spoke to David? And here's what God said through Nathan, the prophet. He said, when your days are complete, talking to David now, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you. Who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And he went on to say that may loving kindness or my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you and your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, some people might say, well, that was Solomon. Well, no, it wasn't Solomon. His throne and his kingdom didn't last forever. It was a reference to the Messiah. The Pharisees were also, I'm sure, trying to get out of their minds Psalm 89 that further proved that the Messiah would be from the line of David. They were trying to somehow justify that that fact with the reality that now Jesus is standing before them claiming that very lineage. In Psalm 89, we read God saying that I I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. The Holy Spirit also spoke through the prophet Ezekiel about the future of his covenant people, Israel. And 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 uh, how they would function and how they would live in the millennial kingdom. And by the way, folks, this is a blessed thought. This text in Ezekiel is one that describes this time when Jesus is going to return, when he will establish his millennial kingdom here on earth for a thousand years, when the new Jerusalem will descend down out of the third heaven and it will. It will hover like a giant space module over the earth, like a like a glorious chandelier suspended over the earth, illuminating the earth with with the glory of God. This will be that time that that interim kingdom period prior to the eternal state when Christ Jesus reigns as Lord and his bride, the church. All of us will travel back and forth from the new Jerusalem to the earth. By the way, this is that glorious city that Abraham anticipated and we read of in Hebrews 11:10, for he was looking for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. This will be that the, the kingdom time that will be inaugurated when uh, when, when Satan will be bound and the tribulation martyrs will be resurrected and the sheep and the goat nations will be judged. You remember all that great prophecy that we read in the scripture. In fact, the entire topography of the holy city will 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 be altered and the, the millennial temple will be built as Ezekiel 40 through 48 describes. And folks, it's at that time that the son of of King David will rule and reign upon Mount Zion. And that son is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, the New Testament uh, uh, saints who constitute the church will rule with him. And so, again, now they knew all of these prophecies. And, and here's what Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 37, beginning in verse 21. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. Let me pause for a second. This is an amazing miracle that we've already seen happen in 1948 when Israel became a nation. He goes on to say, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king will be king for all of them. And that hasn't happened yet, has it? But it will. And they will no longer be two nations and they will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. He goes on to say, I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and I will cleanse them and they will be my people and I will be their God. And again, that hasn't happened, but it will when the Lord returns. And then Ezekiel says, and my servant David, actually, this is God speaking through Ezekiel, and my servant David will be king over them. 
Now, folks, here we have a reference to the ultimate, final, eternal king, the son of David. And often in the prophetic literature, he, he is merely called David as a reference to Messiah's ancestral name. My servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. And they shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Friends, this is such a wonderful truth. I've got to digress for a moment. You see, this is that long-awaited consummation of redemptive history that has been the blessed hope of the saints down through the years. Jeremiah spoke of this in Jeremiah 23, beginning in verse 5. He says, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch. Who is that? That will be Jesus, the Messiah. He will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Now, with all these prophecies rolling around in their mind and seeing Jesus now, they look at him and think, boy, this sure doesn't look like a Messiah to me. And if it is, you know, how come we're still under the bondage of Rome? So they're confused with all of this. But as much as they hated to admit it, the genealogy of Jesus Christ could be easily traced back to David, making him the son of David, the rightful heir to the promised throne. By the way, you will recall when we studied uh, Matthew 1, the genealogical record there validated the very same thing. And indeed, Jesus is the son of David. That being the case, now stick with me, that being the case, which the scribes and Pharisees agreed, Jesus goes on to ask them yet another question. In verse 43, he said to them, then how does David in the spirit, that is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, how, how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will put thine enemies beneath thy feet. A quote from Psalm 110, verse 1. Now, folks, the key to understanding this is knowing the distinction between the Greek translation of the Hebrew. You see, there is a difference between Yahweh, which is the covenant name for God that was that was too holy for them to even utter from their lips. There's a difference between Yahweh, which is the first Lord in the phrase, the Lord said to my Lord. You see that? says, the Lord said to my Lord, well, the first Lord there, and you'll see that your print should be different. It should be a capital L with capitals uh, letters after that, and at least in most translations. And that would be a reference to Yahweh. But the second Lord is different. It's not a translation of Yahweh. It's a translation of Adonai, the second Lord, which is a reference to David's Lord, the title name for his Messiah, for our Messiah. And so, in other words, Yahweh... The covenant name that was too holy to utter, it was the, uh, you've heard me say, the ineffable tetragrammaton, the too wondrous to utter from the lips four letters. It was Yahweh. It was too holy to even speak. And so they would substitute that name with Adonai, which was the title name that would be translated. And you'll see it in your Bibles many times. It's in capital letters or in a lowercase letter. But there you have the substitute for his covenant name. By the way, let me let me digress for a moment before I make sure you understand this, because this is a fascinating thought. You know, it's sad 
What a cavalier attitude most Christians have towards using God's name. Inevitably, I believe a misuse of God's name betrays a profound spiritual immaturity and unfortunately a deficient and irreverent view of God. You hear people say, oh, my God, or good Lord, or you see these signs, Lordy, Lordy, look who's 40. Those silly types of things, dear friends. That is a violation of the third commandment. Do you realize that we're not to speak that way? You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. Isn't there anything sacred anymore? The name of Yahweh was so sacred to the covenant people, they wouldn't even speak it. And we toss it around and banter it around in vain. Beloved, you want to keep in mind, this is the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is what? That Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Child of God, when we stand in the presence of his Shekinah someday and, and when we bow before his holiness, when we look into the eyes of the king of glory and when we feel the full force of his laser like penetration, his omniscient holiness looking into our very soul, there will be no thought of using his name in vain. There will be no thought of that, nor should there be any thought of that today. So I would humbly submit to you that we need to be committed to the same reverence right now. Now, back to verse 43, he says to them, how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying the Lord said to my Lord? You see, what David was saying is Yahweh, Jehovah God, addressed my Lord, the Messiah, my ancestral son, the very son of God. And by extension, the Lord Jesus Christ, even though David didn't understand all of that. And here's what Yahweh said to my Lord, the Messiah. Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. In other words, what he's saying is Yahweh promised his mediator, the, 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 the Messiah, the David's Lord, that he would give him the final and, and the ultimate glory, the majesty, all of these things and the power. The, the, this was a promise of a preeminence that Yahweh was given to was giving to the Messiah, to the Lord Jesus. A promise of preeminence that could only be given to God himself. And so Jesus is saying, all right, Pharisees, since you agree that the expected Messiah, the, the Christ, would be the son of David, then why would David call his own son Lord? If David then calls him Lord, how is, this he, how is he his son? Well, the answer is simple. You see, David's Lord is far more than merely his son. It's far more than merely his descendant. He is the Messiah, the son of the living God, whom Yahweh addressed and gave the preeminence. But they couldn't stand it. They couldn't stand this thought because here's the implication. Jesus was once again saying to them, I am he. If you reject me, you reject David's Lord. Dear friends, please hear me. Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah. He, he was the son of David. He was the son of God. The Holy Spirit expresses this through the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the prototokon. He is the superior one. He is the preeminent one. In Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 2. 
We are told that in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, referring to Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Dear friends, don't be like the Jewish elite and and try to deny the deity of Christ. Over and over, he proved his deity. He proved his power over the sea and and over the over the wind, over sickness, over sin, over Satan, over death. And frankly, only willful rejection could possibly deny such an obvious truth. You see, friends, the issue. When it comes to believing in Christ as as God, believing in Jesus as God is not one of of unbelief because there is insufficient evidence, nor is it a matter of an improper presentation, but rather it's an issue of the hardness of heart. And that's what was going on with the Pharisees and how sad to see the response of those who stood silenced in their guilt before their creator, before their Messiah. Look in verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. My, as always, truth will ultimately silence error, will it not? To argue with truth, my friends, is is like spitting into a gale force wind. Ultimately, error will always yield to the omnipotent power of divine truth. It's interesting, Mark's gospel adds something to the end of this scenario. In Mark 12, 37, we read that the, the great crowd enjoyed listening to him. Isn't that a sad statement? Enjoyed listening to him. Oh, how nice. Boy, that Jesus is a clever feller, isn't he? My, what a clever man. You see, they heard with their ears, but they didn't hear with their heart. And those same people that enjoyed listening to him would cry for his blood in a matter of hours. Now, in light of this amazing scenario, I wish to address just two final subjects that are of enormous importance. We want to secondly revel in his glorious character and in his attributes for a moment. You know, I cannot read this text without feeling a profound sadness for those who who heard the precious Savior once again reveal himself to them, and yet they turned away from the truth. And as they did that, they remained captured, if you will, by the ghoulish claws of, of, of deception. They refused to believe that he was, in fact, God, even though we see it all through Scripture. You realize 23 times in the New Testament, Jesus expressed his preexistent deity. And who knows how many other times he said something about it that isn't recorded. And seven of those times he used the famous I am statement, the ego emi statement. The statements where he attaches a precious metaphor to himself to express the nature of his saving relationship to those who believe in him. You will recall, he said, I am the bread of life. In other words, I am your essential spiritual food. I am the light of the world. He is the only light that can bring hope into this world filled with darkness. He said, I am the door to the sheep. In other words, I am the only entrance 
to eternal safety. He said, I am the good shepherd. I am the only one that can protect you. I'm the only one that can provide for you. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, without him, we would remain forever dead. He said, I am the way, the truth and the life. In other words, I am the only savior of your soul. He said, I am the true vine. In other words, he alone can nourish and sustain us and cause us to bear fruit to his glory. And child of God, what mercy is ours? Those of us who know the truth, think of the joy of this. What an indescribably precious gift is this faith that has been given to us by the power of regeneration. I think of James chapter 1 and verse 17. For the Spirit of God speaks to us saying, Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from where? It's from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In other words, unlike the moon and the stars and, and the sun, those lights come and go and they're shifting shadows. But rather, the goodness and grace of God beams upon us perpetually. And at the end of that text, he says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And I praise the Lord for that, that he exercised his will because I couldn't exercise mine. And he brought me forth and he brought you forth by the word of truth. And beloved, for this reason, we should revel in his glorious character. May I remind you of a few of them that are summarized in various titles and names that we see found in the New Testament. In Revelation 1, 8, we read that he is the almighty. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In 1 Timothy 6.15, we read that He is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. In 1 John 2, verse 1, we read that we have an advocate with our Father. And in Hebrews 12.2, we read that He is the author and the finisher of our faith. And as you look through Scripture, you see more and more titles that attest to His to his deity, to his glory. We see that he is the chief cornerstone. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. He is the high priest. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is the mediator between God and man, the only begotten of the Father, the, our commander, our counselor, our deliverer. He's the forerunner. He was the lawgiver, yet he was the lamb that satisfied the law as the propitiation to God. He is our Passover, the Prince of Peace, our Redeemer, our Rock, our Refuge, our Strength, our Savior. And to think that the Lord of Glory would condescend to our humble estate and that He would lay aside His divine prerogatives and lay aside his glorious privileges, and to be born of a virgin and yet become a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. To think that he would leave the majesty of his glory and he would be born in a manger. To think that he would willingly forsake the company of a myriad of angels and become a, a homeless peasant befriending a bunch of ignorant fishermen. It's amazing, isn't it? To think that the Lord of glory who spoke into being a myriad of galaxies with a word would condescend and come to this earth and take up a hammer and take up a saw and work with his father as a carpenter. The son of God who 
could calm a storm with a word. And the winds would obey his voice. One who could raise the dead with a thought. Yet, according to Philippians 2.8, he was found in appearance as a man and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Oh, dear child of God. How can we possibly treat him with anything but utmost care, with unparalleled devotion, with unmitigated service, with unselfish obedience? How can we do anything but that? It should cause us all to say, oh, Savior, what a blessed thought to know of thy great love. Yet, Lord, I pray for what I ought to live for you above. You see, those of us who profess Christ Jesus as Savior must understand that he is also our Lord. Dear friends, you cannot have one without the other. And thirdly, this morning and briefly, I want to bring you all to a place where you can join with me in rediscovering the implications of his lordship in our lives. You see, even as David called him Lord and worshiped and obeyed him, so too we must submit to him as our Lord, as our master, as our Adonai. Beloved, we willingly and joyfully call him Lord because he loved us and he gave himself for us. Remember 1 Corinthians 6, that wonderful text and beginning in about verse 19, he talks about how that our uh, talks about our body and how it's the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you and uh, whom you have from God. And then he goes on to say, you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, what should we do? Glorify God in your body. You see, our master has laid claim to us. We are rightfully his. How dare we dispute his claim as Lord of our life? In Romans 4 and verse 24, the Holy Spirit caused the inspired apostle to speak of him as Jesus, our Lord. I ask you, can you honestly say that today? Can you honestly call him my Lord? You see, as we look at Scripture, we realize that we are to obey none other beside him. He alone has the right to rule over our life. And I ask you to ask yourself. Is it your passion to offer him your very life, to love him more than family, to love him more than earthly goods, to love him more than personal ambitions? Do you labor to love what he loves and hate what he hates? If he is the Lord of your life, you will. Do you find yourself fleeing from anything that would grieve him? And when you do grieve him, you mourn over your sin. This is the stuff of lordship. Do you find yourself patiently enduring a trial, trusting completely in his sovereign care? Do you concentrate all that you are and all that you have to his service and you hold back nothing? Do you cherish more than life itself those times of sweet communion? Do you crave to humble yourself before his word like a newborn infant craves its milk? Do you love to fellowship with the saints? Do you love to serve the saints? Do you love to sing with the saints? Even if you can only make a joyful noise. Dear friends, does the name of Jesus stir your blood like nothing else? And 
And when you hear his word, there's this ineffable sweetness that somehow steals over your soul. And it causes you to long to see him face to face. And it causes you to long to say, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Dear friends, if this does not describe you, then Jesus is not your Lord. Don't kid yourself. I don't care how many aisles you've walked or how many prayers you've prayed. I don't care how many church services you have attended. I don't care how many Sunday school classes you have taught. I don't care how many marvelous works of religiosity you have performed. Unless those things that I have mentioned are at some level true in your life, you don't know Jesus as Lord. Oh, but I'm a Christian. I go to church. And I even tell others that they need to be in church. Oh, well, that's good. That's that's very nice. But that's not the question. The question is, is Jesus your Lord? Not the Lord of your church, not the Lord of your religion, but is he your Lord? Can you say As the Apostle Paul did in Philippians 3, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Beloved, this is the stuff of the Lordship of Christ. And the result is great power in one's life. And great joy and great blessing. Stories abound of great saints who claimed Jesus as Lord even in the face of persecution. I think of the Roman persecution in the first century in particular, in the second century. It was especially demonic. There was a pastor by the name of Ignatius. By the way, he succeeded Peter as pastor at Antioch. And Ignatius was seized by the Romans for his faith in Christ Jesus as his Lord. And he was destined for martyrdom and he was being delivered from Syria to Rome to be martyred. And as he was taken that long journey to Rome, he encouraged many churches on the way. And here's what he is quoted to have said to the churches. Now I begin to be a disciple. I care for nothing of visible or invisible things so that I may but win Christ. Let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so. Only may I win Christ Jesus. There was another young man by the name of Germanicus that was devoted to the Lord. And he was delivered to the wild beasts in the arena in Rome. And the story goes that he behaved in such an astonishing way, with such bravery, such courage, that a number of the pagans that were watching were convicted and converted. Because they beheld such faith and such fortitude. Polycarp. That venerable bishop, that pastor of the church in Smyrna, was asked or asked the guards if he could pray before he was to be burned. 
And we read the historical account that he prayed with such fervency that his guards repented and embraced Christ as Savior and Lord. They went on to take him to the proconsul. The proconsul urged him, saying, and I quote, Swear and I will release thee. Reproach Christ. And here was Pastor Polycarp's answer. He said, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who hath saved me? There are thousands of similar stories. Stories of the testimony of people that knew Jesus as Savior and Lord. And you read of many of them in the catacombs underneath Rome. 600 miles of galleries, about 8 feet high, anywhere from 3 to 5 feet wide. And like berths on a ship, you have dead bodies of saints, many saints that lie behind marble slabs. And when you look upon those slabs, you will read epitaphs and symbols, either engraved or painted. And the most frequent symbols are things like the good shepherd with a, with a lamb on, on his shoulder or a ship under full sail. You'll see harps and anchors and crowns and vines. But above all, you will find the symbol of, of the fish, that, that acrostic. You familiar with that? The ichthus, I-C-T-H-U-S in English. And really what that is is an acrostic because those letters in Greek spell the word fish. And so you would have uh, Iota, Chi, Theta, Upsilon, Sigma. And the beginning of each of those letters would be the first letter of the word that would spell fish, but they would be the first letter describing the Lord. And it would be the, let, or the, word, the letters would describe him as Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. That's the symbol that you see most of all. And when you think about it, despite the atrocities committed against them, the inscriptions reveal the peace that surpasses all understanding and the triumph of faith in Christ Jesus as their Lord. Let me give you a few of the epitaphs of the Christians that lie in those catacombs. One says, here lies Marcia put to rest in a dream of peace. Another reads, Lawrence to his sweetest son, born away of angels. Another, victorious in peace and in Christ. Another, being called away, he went in peace. What a contrast to the pagan epitaphs such as this one, and I quote. Live for the present hour since we are sure of nothing else. I lift my hands against the gods who took me away at the age of 20, though I had done no harm. Once I was not, now I am not. I know nothing about it, and it is no concern of mine. Traveler, curse me not as you pass, for I am in darkness and cannot answer. Oh, dear friend, what a tragedy to live and to die without Christ. To have no joy, to have no peace, to have no hope. All you have is the eternal separation and the endless flames of hell. But oh, what a blessed hope we have, those of us who are redeemed. Amen? What a blessed hope we have. 
I pray that you all belong to Christ because, beloved, you will know that Christ is your Savior. Now, please hear this. If your life proves that he is also your Lord, if that's not there, you need to question your faith. But those of you who, like the Pharisees, refuse to believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the only Savior of sin, all I can do this morning is beg you to repent while there is still time, before it is too late. For there is a terrible doom that awaits those who refuse to bow the knee to Jesus as Savior and as Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are humbled by these glorious truths and we're humbled at your mercy and your grace in our lives. We recognize that were it not for the transforming power of your spirit, we too would be like the one of which we just read. Lord, I pray that these seeds of divine truth will find lodging in our hearts and bear the glorious fruits of righteousness to the praise of your glory. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. There's still time before it is too late. For there is a terrible doom that awaits those who refuse to bow the knee to Jesus as Savior and as Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are humbled by these glorious.